do you remember when the world was going to end? Come on, do you remember? It was something called Y2K, year 2000. It was going to mess all our computers up and everything was going to be changed because they couldn't handle and, and the world was just going to come crashing down for many of us. We used to write a lot. We wrote these things called checks. And some of us, some of you young, you don't know, you don't know this, we've been writing 19-something for a long time. And we had to write 2-0-something. And it was pretty wild that we had to change. You remember that? It was a different time. Tommy Tuberville was a football coach and not a senator. <clears throat> Nick Saban was head coach at LSU. It was a different world. And not far into that decade, on September 11th, 2001, well, everything changed. The whole world was turned upside down. It would never be the same again. And wow, wow, what, what change happened in the next few years after that. Of course, President George W. Bush united a nation simply by throwing a strike at Yankee Stadium. And then we had a war on terror. And then a hurricane nearly wiped New Orleans off the map. And then we had one of the most big, the biggest economic crisis we'd seen since the Great Depression. Some of our great American companies had to be bailed out. And then Barack Obama, the very first African-American president, was elected in U.S. history. It was quite a, a season of change in the 2000s. But that, those, those big monumental things that happened, I, I don't think, they pale in comparison to the biggest change that happened in the 2000s. And that came because of the rise of technology. There was this new thing called the internet. And everyone all of a sudden was writing emails to one another. You remember like when you just started writing emails and all of a sudden people couldn't walk five feet down the hall in the office and we just emailed everybody. And then in 2005, this thing called Facebook was born. In 2006, this thing called Twitter was born. And in 2007, Apple came out with this revolutionary thing, the iPhone. And I remember when the iPhone came out in 2007, I'm like, I'm never getting one of those things. I don't want my email with me all the time. And now we can't imagine a world. In fact, I believe, I, I, was, sitting, I was thinking about this all week long, that I don't know that there is another decade. When you combine technology and September 11th, I don't know if there's another decade that has changed the course of our culture more than the 2000s. Maybe the 40s or World War II. That you, now, we can't imagine not being connected in the way through, through we are through social media. Used to, you graduated from high school, you graduated from college, and you never saw those friends again except for one or two of them. Now, you see their kids grow up in your hand, and you see their prom pictures, and you know their children's names because of social media. It was a turning point. The 2000s were in our world. And the 2000s were a turning point for our church as well. Mountaintop had hit her stride. 
we moved into this building. You heard the stories in 2001. It became home. But a building doesn't make a church. There are empty cathedrals all across Europe that you could walk into, and they're some of the most stunning pieces of architectural work that you could ever see, but they're not really churches anymore. They're tourist distractions. A church is supposed to be something else. It's a people. But don't miss what a big deal this building was. If you've never been a part of a church plant and you don't know what it's like to kind of have the stress of not having a permanent home or being transient and spending eight years in four buildings, there's not a lot of stability in that. And it is a big deal when a church finally moves into what its permanent home was it but it worked not because we had this great new building it worked because our founding pastor bill elder made sure that we didn't just build a building that we were building a people in fact you're going to see at the end of our time today how it was proven like we could never imagined that we were more than just a building we were a church but i believe that we too are at a turning point I believe that when we begin to uh, look back uh, on, on now, uh, what those, they sacrificed 20 years ago to get into this place financially, emotionally, for the ministry that they created and built that we enjoy, for the worship that we get to be a part of, for the kids' ministry that are, take care of our kids and teach them about Jesus, for the student ministry that our children, that our, that our young people are part of every Sunday night. And I just wonder... 20 years from now, will that generation look the same on us? I'll be 65, most likely retired because I can get Medicare then, right? I think I got about 20 years left in ministry, give or take a year. You know, maybe 21, maybe 19. I think I got about 20 years left. Will they look on us the way that we look back on those that sacrificed to make this possible? And the question I keep coming back to is from a book called Halftime by Bob Buford. This is kind of the book that he poses, the the question that he poses is, will I allow my fruit to grow on other people's trees? Will I live my life? Would you and I, would we live our lives in such a way, would we lead this ministry in such a way that we allow our fruit to grow on other people's trees? In other words, it's not for us. Would we build a foundation that someone else will construct the walls on Is it okay for me if it's not about me? Is it okay with you if it's not about you? I believe this is a turning point, a season where we need to ask ourselves this question. Will I allow my fruit to grow on somebody else's tree 10, 20, 30 years in the future? Well, there's no better place to answer this question than a turning point in Jesus' ministry and his life and in his relationship with his disciples. We're going to look at a conversation that happens in Matthew chapter 16. And if you've got your Bibles, you want to open them there, you're watching online. If you don't have one, please take uh, a Bible on the way out if you're here in person on the bookshelves. That's free in our gift to you. 
Jesus had not really made a lot of bold claims about himself. He had healed people. He had done some amazing things. He had taught as one who had authority, but mostly he had raised a lot of questions. And people were asking questions like this, what sort of man is this? Like, (laughs) who can do the things he can do? Are you the one who is to come? Tell us. Can this be the son of David? There were questions, but he just kind of refused to answer them. People were drawing their own conclusions, so he decided to have a conversation first with his 12 closest friends, his disciples. They go on a camping trip about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, where they spent most of their time, most of their ministry, where most of these guys were from. And they end up finally by themselves away from the crowd at the base of Mount Hermon in, a, in an area called Caesarea Philippi. And when they get there, Jesus has a question for them. And so beginning in verse 13 of chapter 16 in Matthew, it says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Hey, guys, What's the word on the street? You know, what's trending on Twitter about me? What are people saying? Who, who do people say that I am? And they've got, they've got some answers. They're like, well, mom and them are saying this, and my friends are saying this. Basically, here's, here's what they tell him. They replied, some, some are saying you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others are saying Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, the three names that they give her, those are heavy hitters. John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest man to ever live. In fact, the way Jesus described John, that there was no man born of woman greater than John. Wow, heavy hitter. Elijah, He was so in tune with God that he didn't die. God literally took him up to heaven when his time was over. Elijah was a heavy hitter. Jeremiah, major player in the Old Testament of God, wooing his people back in obedience to him. He's got this huge book in the Old Testament. It's hard to miss Jeremiah. If you just flip through the Old Testament, you'll land on Jeremiah because there's so, there's so many pages. He also wrote the book of Lamentation. So it's this huge, long part of the story of Israel's redemption is Jeremiah. These are three heavy hitters, but they all three have one thing in common. They're all prophets. They're all prophets. Basically what they're saying is, Jesus, people are saying that you are one of the prophets or just another prophet. And every religion has prophets. Muhammad, Moses, Jonathan Smith, Guru Nanak, Gautama Buddha, Ron Hubbard. You know some of those names. Some of them you don't because they're not your religion, but they're all prophets. They give very Jewish answers because they're Jewish and they hang around Jewish people. They say Jewish prophets' names, but Jesus had healed a Roman centurion's uh, servant, and if, if you had asked the Roman centurion, who do you think Jesus is, or who are your people, your friends, your relatives, they might have said, well, maybe one of the prophets of Zeus, Jupiter, they don't know. That's kind of what's, but here's the thing about prophets. When it comes to prophets, if they, a prophet says something that's out of whack 
We just don't have to believe it. We pick and choose. Because here's the thing about prophets. We don't follow prophets when it doesn't profit us. Right? This is the story of the prophets in the Old Testament. When the prophets give the Israelites good news, they're like, yay, we love you. You're the best prophet ever. And when they give them bad news and they say, like, you're going to be defeated by this army or God's going to, you know, if you turn your back, you're, and they're, we don't like you anymore. And they cast those prophets out. Sometimes they kill them. Sometimes they ostracize them because we don't follow prophets when it doesn't profit us. We get to pick and choose. Prophets are kind of like diets. You just pick and choose what you like from the diet. Do you remember the diet that came out in the 2000s? The big diet? That was the Atkins diet. Do you remember? Like it was like if you look from like 2003 to 2008, all the Atkins books, it had been around a while, but they started publishing book after book every year and diet. And I remember the first time I heard the Atkins diet and I was like, you can have bacon all the time. I love it. And then I learned more. You can't have biscuits. Yeah, I'm not doing that. No, no, no. You want to see me low carb, you want to see me high angry. That's what you're going to get. Low carb me is high angry me, right? Carbs make us happy. And so that's kind of what we do. We pick and choose with, with diets, the part we like. We pick and choose with profits. And if it doesn't profit us, it doesn't benefit us, we, yeah, we're not doing that. And that's what Jesus wants to know is like, well, how do people see me? Is that what they're saying about me, that I'm just a prophet? Because then you can... Figure out what you like. Is it a why? Am I a wise sage or do you not like it? And then he asked them a question, and this is the most important question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that matters, and the answer to this question changes everything. This is the personal turning point for every person. And it was a turning point for the disciples. If he is a prophet, then maybe I can get some wisdom when it profits me and I can discard the parts I don't like or that I disagree with. But if he is something more, well, then that changes everything. And I want you to be able to answer that question. And I want everyone in Birmingham to be able to answer that question. Let's look at Peter's answer to that question. Simon Peter, who often kind of was the spokesman, whether he was elected or just stuck himself out there, he speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're it. You're not a prophet. You're the son of God. And if this is true, the implications are huge. I can't pick and choose anymore. If he's the son of the living God, if he is really God in the flesh, if he really died for us, if he really sacrificed himself for our sins in our world, if he really rose from the dead, if that's really true, then everything he taught and claimed is on the table. And if he says to turn my cheek when others insult me, then when I'm insulted, I don't get my fingers together and fire off an insult right back online. And if he says to love my enemies, then I have to love my enemies. And if he says to be generous, then I have to be generous. And if he says to go the second mile, then I have to go the second mile. This is a turning point. 
And, and our decision, our, our own admonition of what about you, what do you think, who do you say that I am, that will be the turning point in our lives. I have a theory about the American church. I have a theory that we have a lot of churchgoers in America and I'm a churchgoer too, and this has been true of my life too, and you sort of heard Glenn talk about this a little bit, and Art and Joyce, that I have a theory that there are a lot of churchgoers in America who admire, respect, and even believe in Jesus. And you can kind of admire and believe and respect from the side, and I can put Jesus kind of equal. I admire him. He's a great prophet. He's a great teacher. He was a great person. I respect him, but you can admire John and you can respect Jeremiah you know you can believe some of the things Elijah taught but when we claim that Jesus is the Messiah the son of the living God then I'm no longer sideways with Jesus I am under him and what Peter does is exalt Jesus above him you're everything you're everything you are over me I am under you you are on the throne of my life and when we exalt Jesus to the throne of our lives, then all of a sudden my future and my destiny and my life and everything he taught and stood for is on the table, even if I don't like it. What he says about my relationships, my habits, my thoughts, my sex life, my money, my attitude toward the poor, my tendency to put myself first, and what I think about my neighbor who looks differently than me, thinks differently than me, and votes differently than me. It's all on the table. You can believe Jesus, you can, you can admire Jesus, and you can respect Jesus and give yourself several excellent outs in how you treat your neighbor and how you treat your enemy and how you treat those that are different for you and how you be believe and behave in the world. But if you exalt Jesus to the throne of your life, then all of a sudden you become a follower. You are under his lordship, under his kingship, and there are no longer any loopholes. Everything he says goes because he's God and you're not. And Jesus' response to Peter is, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Jesus renames him. And on this rock, this confession, this proclamation you have made that I am the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time and one of only two times that Jesus uses the word church, and they're both in Matthew. Now, they're in Paul's epistles, Paul's letters. Uh, that word's in there, but the only two times Jesus uses it, and this is the first and man, we have messed this word up in the way we think about it and even the way we use it. I've spent most of my ministry trying to figure out a better word to call the building that we meet in. Because this ain't a church. This is just a bunch of bricks and mortar. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. This is the word he used. The Greek word was ekklesia. And it meant assembly. It meant gathering. It meant a community of people. I am building a people, and the foundation of this people is not a denominational heritage, a doctrinal stance, a list of rules. Jesus told his disciples, guys, I'm building a people, and the foundation is me. 
and this confession that I am the Messiah and the Son of the living God, and that is the rock upon which we build our ministry. And the church built on that isn't really a building. It's, it's a people. Man, we've messed this up. And we've, we've built buildings in the church, and we've called them churches, and we've said, oh, they're just these sacred places, and, you know, we just said you, should, you can't take any food and drink in the sanctuary, and you got to sit there real quiet and put your hands in, and don't wiggle, and, you know, jerk a knot in the tail of your kid because they're wiggling in church and all this, because this is such a sacred place. There are no sacred places. Jesus did not come to build an organization that was bricks and mortar. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain on the temple torn in two, and 70 years later, the temple was torn down and is no more. There is no temple. God doesn't live in building. God wants to live in eight billion little temples on planet Earth. I'm coming to build a people. I'm coming to build an ecclesia. That's what I want to build. And hey, you might have to build some buildings, to reach people. Pastor Bill, 20 years ago, and the team here at Mountaintop, thank God they did that. And this building has been a place where you heard four stories, people's lives have changed. But it wasn't because of the carpet and the seats. It's because of the ministry, the relationships. And so I believe that this is a turning point in our ministry to build more people. And we need to make some changes to our building so that we can reach more people than we've ever reached before. And the main space that we believe we're called to do this is in our children's and student ministry spaces. Simply put, they're not big enough and they're not good enough. They just need some love. They need to be improved. They need to be renovated. And we need more space for our kids if we're going to reach the largest demographic in our community, which is young families. Let me ask you a question. If a home goes up for sale in your neighborhood and someone buys it, who moves into that home? Most of the time, it's a young family with children in the home. Because Birmingham is a great place to raise a family, and our school systems are phenomenal. And if we're going to reach those families, then we, I believe that our children's ministry and our student ministry spaces should be the very best spaces on campus. And friends, right now, they're the worst. They're the tiredest. So let's show our community that we love them by making those spaces the best for their kids. I'll be kind of just tell you a little bit about some numbers in our heart. Mountaintop has maxed out at about 1,200 in worship over the years. And the 2000s were really, when we moved into this building, was some of the, the times where it kind of reached its peak, and about 12 or 1,300. And we have kind of just, you know, hit our head against the wall. Like, what is it about that number? Why can't we get past that? If you look around, we got plenty of seats. Right, we got plenty of seats. Parking, some could say could be an issue, but we got parking at the student center. We've got parking at the Chambers building that we're able to use across the street. So we believe we can park them. What is the problem? And we began talking with architects. Are there things in our building? And one of the things we learned is that we have about enough square footage space for children for a sanctuary half this size. So once the sanctuary about half fills up... <laughs> We get enough. And if you have ever taken your children to kids' ministry on an Easter Sunday, you know what I'm talking about. 
it looks like an ant farm, right? They're everywhere. There's just not enough room. So we're working on a campaign and all the details about what it would look to make additions to our kids' ministry spaces, improve our student ministry spaces. And I just want to tell you, for, God to, for this to happen in our church, it will be more than just a vision and more than just an idea. It's going to take a people who have exalted Jesus in their lives. And if we would do that, there are great promises from God. Even the gates of hell won't overcome it. Simply the promise that Jesus gives us is this. If we let God do something in us, there is no limit to what God can do through us. If we let God do something in us, there are no limits to what he can do through us. And that's what I want to invite you to do. But let me tell you something. Something's going to have to happen in us for that to happen through us. It's going to mean that we have to exalt Jesus in our lives Exalt Jesus personally. It means we're going to have to serve like never before, step up like never before, give like never before, show up like never before, invite like never before. Do whatever we can to put Jesus on the throne of our lives because we can have the prettiest building with the best bricks and mortar in town. We can have the best sermons that I can muster up to preach. We can have the best kids ministry team on planet earth and we can have the best music you can hear this side of YouTube, but it will not make a dent if we are not a people who have Jesus exalted in our everyday lives. It will not make a dent because Jesus wasn't building an organization that had good music and good preaching. He came to build a people. And I am not the people. We are the people. So the question every single one of us has to ask is the question Jesus asked. What about you, Jesus asked us. Who do you say that I am? If Jesus is king of our lives, Lord of our lives, I want to tell you something. If we will let God do something in us, there is no limits to what he can do through us. As the end of the 2000s decade came to a close, on Christmas Eve 2009, our founding pastor, Bill Elder, had a stroke. December 24th afternoon before he was to preach Christmas Eve services. And for two years, the church didn't have a pastor. As it waited and wondered and hoped and prayed, could Bill come back? Could he make it back? Could he be pastor again? Could he preach again? And I want you to know something. The gates of hell tried awfully hard to overcome mountaintop. But Pastor Bill had not built a building. And God had not built bricks and mortar. God had built a church in this place. And it has lasted long after Pastor Bill has stepped away. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of something that lasts long after I'm gone. That is bigger than me. We're going to close with Tori uh, leading us in a, the song we learned last week. But before that, she's just going to help us sing a chorus that was popular back in the 2000s that I thought about as I read this scripture it's just an easy chorus. It just says, I exalt thee. 
And I just wonder, would that be your prayer? Your answer to that question. God, I want you, I want Jesus on the throne of my life and whatever you say goes. And we're a little later today because we have a lot to talk about, a lot to celebrate, and a lot to pray about. But I hope you'll just, just slow down your heart for a few minutes. And let's stand and sing and pray as we do.